0: Is this a Presbyterian church? <laughs> Wonderful, thank you so much, Jerry and the choir and Anne Marie, thank you. You never failed me yet. This is uh, the Thanksgiving Sunday uh, leading into Thanksgiving. It's the culminating uh, Sunday of our four week focus on our stewardship theme. Together, beyond this pandemic, it's all about doubling down on our thanks during this challenging time. Uh, we're going to look at a pretty traditional stewardship text from the Gospel of Luke. It only, this story only occurs in Luke, um, 17th chapter, beginning with the 11th verse. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church today. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. Whether you're worshiping virtually or here in the sanctuary together, please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Lord, may the meditations of our hearts together upon this your word to us on this day, in this moment, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Pastor and author Andy Stanley, who happens to be the son of the television preacher Charles Stanley, tells a story of what happened to him just last year during the sort of early most challenging days of the pandemic. Andy Stanley says, sometimes I just want it to stop. Talk of COVID, arguing, looting, brutality, I lose my way. I become convinced that this is the new normal, that this is real life and we're all stuck in it. Then I meet an 87-year-old who talks of his life, of polio, diphtheria, the Vietnam War and Vietnam protests, bad 70s music, and yet is still enchanted with life. The 87-year-old seems surprised when I say that the headlines in 2020 must be especially challenging for him. No, he says slowly looking me straight in the eyes, I learned a long time ago to not see the world through the people and the noise that surround me. I see the world with the realization that we love big, so I just choose to write my own headlines. Husband loves wife today. Family drops everything to be at sister's bedside. He pats my hand. Old man makes new young friend. His words collide with my worries, freeing them from the tether that had been holding them tight. They float away. I am left with a renewed spirit and a new way to see the world, a new way to write my own headlines. I love that. Seeing the world a new way helps us to write our own headlines. Like a lot of you probably, I've been grimly fascinated with the ongoing vaccination debate everywhere in this country, around the world, but particularly in the world of professional sports. We've got Kyrie Irving, for example, the immensely talented basketball player As the kids say, the guy's got handles. Uh, Who plays for the Brooklyn Nets, one of the best players in the world, who actually attended Montclair Kimberley Academy here in Montclair for a a time, which makes MKA very proud, but then in a less proud moment for MKA, Kyrie Irving once stated publicly that he thought the world just might be flat. So I think he missed, he must have been, he must have had a game that day. Kyrie Irving is among those professional athletes, a small percentage, who have chosen not to be vaccinated, which, of course, is his individual right, his choice. Though, in exercising his right as part of a team, it means that because of New York City's COVID regulations, Kyrie Irving, one of the best players in the world, can't play in any games or even practice in any of his team's gyms in Brooklyn, in New York City. It is going to cost Irving millions of dollars, this choice he has made, and it'll cost his team a chance at the kind of success their commitment and hard work have uh, been building to for a long time. And then, of course, more recently even, we've got Aaron Rodgers, the immensely, incredibly talented, probably the most gifted, naturally gifted quarterback I've ever seen as sort of a football aficionado, and a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, which as a Stanford alum, I can say is probably the source of all of his problems. Um, Aaron Rodgers, it seems, has also decided not to be vaccinated for COVID-19, but apparently, unlike Kyrie Irving, who's upfront about it, uh, Rodgers had not been following NFL protocols for those who wish to make and exercise that choice. Masks in public, distancing, uh, getting tested, kind of prioritizing other people's health. And once again, for exercising his right as he has done it, Rogers has missed one game uh, because he tested positive for COVID. He's passed that now, thankfully. And more importantly, has at times put others and his teammates and other people perhaps in jeopardy. Not one of us, as it turns out, whatever you think about the rightness or wrongness of people's opinions and choices with regard to vaccines, not one of us, as it turns out, is the rugged individualist we'd like to think ourselves to be, especially these days. Our choices about how we want to live affect everyone around us, have consequences to those choices. I think it was Chief Seattle from my part of the country, my family's part of the country, who once said, humankind has not woven the web of life. We are but one thread within it. All things are bound together. All things connect. That's classic Reformed Protestant Christian understanding. Uh, that's the classic, actually, even though it was expressed by the Native America with a different religion. It's the way that we Presbyterians in our tradition understand our role in the divine human relationship. God chooses to love us fully and completely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that choice has consequences. Our salvation is the primary consequence, which starts, by the way, right now in the whole and abundant life that God makes possible for us as human beings. God's choice has consequences that literally save us. And we have a choice too. We have a choice about how we're gonna love God back. And that choice has consequences as well. That's a stewardship choice. There's a great story, another sports story, because I'm on a roll here today, about Bill Walton, one of the all-time greatest college basketball players to ever play the game, and a pretty good Hall of Fame pro player as well. Walton, who was seven feet tall, he never likes liked to admit that he's seven feet tall because he thought people would think he was weird. But he's 6'11", right? That's what he lists himself as. He played for the great and undefeated UCLA basketball teams of the early 1970s. When I was a kid, I remember these teams, and he played under the legendary coach John Wooden. Coach Wooden in those days had a rule against facial hair. If you played for Coach John Wooden at UCLA, no facial hair was allowed. No beards, no mustaches, no long sideburns. Remember, this is the 70s but Bill Walton, who was the school's superstar, was and is kind of a free spirit. And one day, after a week-long break from school, Walton showed up at practice wearing a beard. Coach Wooden walked up to him and said, Bill, have you forgotten something? Bill Walton replied, Coach, if you mean the beard, I think I should be allowed to wear it. It's my right. Coach Wooden said to him, do you really believe that? Bill said, yes, I do, Coach, very much. Coach Wooden looked at him and said, Bill, I have great respect for individuals like you who stand up for those things in which they believe. I really do. And if you believe it is your right, then I would die to defend your right. Bill Walton said, thank you, Coach. I really appreciate that. And then Coach Wooden said, I just want you to know the team is really going to miss you. (laughs) That's the biblical conviction that sort of strengthens and supports and underlies our Thanksgiving worship, our stewardship theme that we're focusing on today together beyond this pandemic. Our decisions about who we are don't just define us. They don't just define and shape the kind of people we want to be and the life we want to live. No, like it or not, whether we know it or not, our decisions define the communities we're a part of, our circle of friends, our families, our faith community like this one. Take our famous story today from Luke about Jesus and the 10 lepers. This story in chapter 17 of Luke has two parts. In the first part of the story, and again, it's a story that only Luke tells in the Gospels, 10 men with what the author Luke calls leprosy have an encounter with Jesus. And this first part, which is the part we preachers usually tend to rush through so we can get to the second part, is what I'd like for us to pause for a few extra moments today and consider, because I think we need to think about that first part a little bit more so that we can see the second part a bit more clearly. The first part of this story, which begins in verse 11, uh, starts with the clause, which is an important clause in Luke, on the way to Jerusalem. You I may mean, I think that's just a sort of a sort of a transition phrase, but it's not. In Luke, that that phrase occurs quite a bit after around chapter nine, when Jesus, we're told, sets his face toward Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem, then, for the rest of the gospel, including our reading today, is kind of a code announcing and reminding the reader that Jesus is on his way to die, where he will be betrayed, condemned, tried, and crucified. So that everything that happens in this part of Luke, everything that happens to Jesus, everything that he does and says on the way to Jerusalem, tells us something about who he really is and what his priorities are for us. So on the way to Jerusalem, we're told, Jesus is approached by a group, a loose community, if you will, of 10 lepers. Now they probably suffered from what we know to be, now to be, Hansen's disease, which is a disease that destroys the nerves in the extremities, making your fingers and your toes initially insensitive to pain, so that eventually your limbs wear down and become damaged through repeated injury and that sort of incorrect usage. But leprosy in biblical times, as a word to be applied to other people, could also mean any number of skin problems. The Hebrew people had a thing about skin diseases, sacrificial animals, goats or sheeps or doves, or even human beings whose body's outer coat, so to speak, happened to be blotched or mottled or multicolored or birthmarked, were often rejected and even seen as unclean or unworthy. So lepers who had skin issues of some kind were shunted off to the fringes, the margins of society, outside of the village, out of sight. Around other people, by biblical law, lepers were required to cover their faces with hoods or veils. They were required by biblical law to shout out loudly whenever they came near any other people to announce their presence, kind of as a warning because they were thought, whether true or not, or always the case or not, to be highly contagious, but really that way of separating and keeping them on the edges, marginalizing, subjugating them through these laws was really just because they were different. We have a way of doing that to people who are different, sort of pushing them to the sides so that we don't have to see them. No wonder that lepers in Jesus' time tended to travel in packs. They needed each other for some kind of community. They were isolated people, and also for their own protection. These 10 people, these 10 people who are going through that in their lives, do yell at Jesus as they're supposed to do, but what they yell is not a yell of warning. They don't try to have him keep his distance. They ask for his help. They yell, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, as he's walking by. And Jesus, maybe without even stopping or pausing, but as he keeps walking, yells back, go show yourselves to the priest. That's all he says. Which they all do, or at least they start to do. They obey him. They take his uh, instruction. And Luke tells us, even before they got to the priest, they were all healed. He uses the phrase, they were all made clean. That's the first part of the story. All 10 individuals did what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, asked them to do, and all 10 individuals were blessed with healing. Life-changing, life-restoring healing. Can you imagine when they show up at dinner at their family's house where they've been excluded their whole lives? What that must have been like? Thanks be to God. Part two. Then, one of them, Luke tells us, just one, that's, according to my math, 10%, realizes he's been healed and pauses, turns, goes back, throws himself, prostrates himself at Jesus' feet, and gives thanks. And, as a result, according to Luke, is not only healed, made clean, this guy is made well. and it's clear from the structure of this story that Luke wants us to keep that distinction in mind, the difference between being healed and being made well, made whole. Even Jesus is surprised. He asks, were not 10 made clean? What about the other nine, who are all, by the way, Jews, presumably, in this story? Why aren't they here? Was none found to return and give praise except this foreigner Why is he so special? Remember, this guy, this God-praising, thanksgiving former leper is a hated Samaritan. Someone, any Jewish person who was there that day, including Jesus, would not have expected to do anything right or holy or anything resembling remotely what God would want them to do. Jews hated Samaritans. And for that matter, what about those other nine What's so wrong with them? They were all healed, right? One of my favorite little books uh, is a collection of essays entitled The Way of the Wolf by Martin Bell. In that book, Bell imagines the answer to this question that Jesus poses in Luke here today. What about the other nine? It's simple, really, Bell writes, and then he goes on to tell of one guy who was so frightened by what happened to him, this sudden, unexpected healing, that he could only go look for a place to hide, to kind of get his thoughts together. Bell describes another of the former lepers who was offended that Jesus did not make him work harder in order to be healed. He just didn't like that grace thing. felt he needed to earn it a little bit. Another one of the nine discovered pretty quickly that he didn't want to be healed. He liked complaining about his illness. He liked the way it worked for him. Bell imagined that one of of those who healed might have been a mother who did not return to give thanks because she had to go rush to see her children and care for them. One was so happy, he just forgot to say thanks. We often do that. I've got thank you notes on my to-do list that have been there for months. For one of those healed, according to Bell, it was gonna take a long time to repair the broken dignity that had happened over a course of a lifetime for him because there is something that happens to a person who's forced to beg and be shunned and still expected to say thank you. Bell continues on about a seventh leper who was convinced there had to be a perfectly intelligible scientific explanation for what had just happened. He did not go back to give thanks to Jesus because he didn't believe Jesus had anything to do with it, really. And then leper number eight did not come back precisely because he did believe Jesus had everything to do with it, and to return and give thanks when the Messiah had arrived, when the kingdom of God was obviously at hand, well, that would be unheard of. He was going to go out and tell people the good news. Look what just happened to me and these other guys. And the last leper, according to Martin Bell, the ninth, well, Bell invites the reader to ponder because no one ever, no one really knew what ever happened to him or her. It's kind of like trying to get everyone together for a high school reunion. There's always one you can't find. You know, there's nothing wrong, I think. Bell's right. There's nothing wrong at all with receiving a blessing, being healed, being forgiven, being offered a second chance, being blessed once again with family or friends or relationship or beauty, and keeping it for ourselves. It's meant for us, right? Those nine really aren't worth our condemnation in part one of this story today. It's just that the 10th, That unusual, unloved, disrespected Samaritan guy who was a leper as well his whole life saw something that the other nine did not. Christianity is, after all, more than anything else, a way of seeing. Christians see differently and make decisions based on that different way of viewing the world. And that's why our prayer, our worship, what we do as a church, as individual believers, our whole way of being in the world has a distinctive accent and flavor because we look at things differently. It's a choice that we make because God's made the choice for us in Christ and for the whole world. Origen of Alexandria, one of the so-called fathers of the church, once remarked that holiness is seeing with the eyes of Christ. That's all it is. Thomas Aquinas, another uh, father of the church, said that the ultimate goal of the Christian life is a beatific vision, an act of seeing. The Samaritan saw something, and it changed his life. But then he came back and gave thanks, and it changed Jesus too. Whoa, this one guy came back. He wasn't just healed, that Samaritan, he was made whole. Being thankful, feeling thankful is a private matter, but this guy, by giving thanks, by moving beyond this deep, real feeling of thankfulness, he took his love that he'd received from God and made it public. And that has consequences when we do that. That's what we're about as a church, bearing witness, because like him, we want not only to be healed, but to continue to be made well. And when we do that, it changes the world, even in tough times. Back in the dark days of 1929, just at the outset really of, or the first real solid years of the depression in this country and around the world, A group of ministers in the Northeast, all graduates of the Boston School of Theology, gathered to discuss how they should conduct their Thanksgiving Sunday services, given all that they were going through at the time, all that people were going through. Things were about as bad as they could get, with no sign of relief. The stock market had crashed, jobs had been lost, people were starving. The bread lines were depressingly long, the stock market had plummeted, and the turn Term, which was a new term, Great Depression, seemed an apt description for the mood of the country. Everybody was depressed. The ministers thought they should only lightly touch upon the subject of Thanksgiving in deference to all the human misery around them. After all, what was there this year to be thankful for? We can sort of relate at least a little bit because of this pandemic that never seems to end. But it was this one minister, the the Reverend Dr. William L. Steiger, pastor of a large congregation in Boston, who rallied the group into a different way of thinking and toward a different direction. This was not the time, Steiger suggested, to give mere passing attention to thanksgiving, but just the opposite. It's time to double down. This was the time for the nation to get matters in perspective and thank God for blessings always present, no matter what but perhaps suppressed due to intense hardship. And those ministers back in 1929 were on to something, I think. They saw the same way that 10th leper did. They saw that the most intense moments of thankfulness are not found in times of plenty, but in times of difficulty and challenge and even suffering, frustrations even. Because when we double down on thanks, when we make God's love for us public, We can change the world and not just make ourselves whole, but others too. May it be so. Amen.